Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. On today's episode, I'm joined by Josh Grisdale. Josh has cerebral palsy and uses an electric wheelchair in his daily life. He moved to Japan in 2007 and became a Japanese citizen in 2016. He has used his intimate knowledge of getting around Japan in a wheelchair to set up and run the website Accessible Japan, which provides the latest accessible travel information for people coming to, staying in, and living in Japan. It's a great resource, and Josh is always expanding the website based on user feedback, so please go and show it some love. Today's episode focuses on accessibility in Japan and how the country can continue to become more inclusive and accessible as it moves beyond the Paralympic Games. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. And thank you for having us up in、uh, Edogawa Ward. It's nice for me to travel and get out of the Japan <laughs> Times offices. Glad to have you here. So, I mentioned in the introduction that you became a Japanese citizen back in 2016, and that's where I want to kick off this conversation and just get a bit of the history of your relationship with Japan and how it was for you moving here with a disability. Yeah.、Uh, so, actually, around this time in the summer is my, my Japanese birthday, as I call it.、Uh, so, I'll be turning five this year. So,、oh, I'm a little Japanese boy. I have to go to school soon. But yeah, no, I, I grew up in Canada. I'm from a small town outside of Toronto.、Um, we lived on a farm actually, so we had a lot of sheep and not many people around.、Uh, so I, I had this,、uh, cerebral palsy, so because of that, I use a wheelchair.、Um, but thankfully,、um, in Canada,、uh, the laws that had come just a little bit before I'd been born、um, allowed me to go to school with everybody else in my age group,、um, go to the same schools the whole time. So、uh, that was really great.、Um, and、uh, in my high school, we actually had a Japanese class. Kind of strange in the middle of nowhere to have a Japanese class in Canada.、Um, and so that really sparked an interest、uh, in Japan and me. And when did that interest evolve into you first coming to Japan?、Uh, Yeah, that, I finished high school and、um, I wanted to come visit Japan before starting university. At that time, there really wasn't much information about accessibility in Japan at all,、mm. of course.、Um, and I、uh, wasn't sure if it was going to be a possibility, but、uh, my parents have always encouraged me to, you know, to take、uh, risks and challenges. And you know, even if it doesn't work out, then at least you tried.、Uh, at that time, my parents, you know, my dad decided to come with me. So、uh, that really helped sort of alleviate a lot of the fears, et cetera. I mean, I also need somebody to help me, anyways. So we came over here in 2000 for the first time. And I got hooked. And paint a picture for me. How was Japan for accessibility when you first visited in 2000? Well, it was a lot easier than I had expected, I guess is the best way to say it. I had only seen things on, in media, so I wasn't really quite sure what the reality was for people with disabilities because, you know, that's not often shown in media. I was impressed that you could actually get on the train. There was a spot on the train.、Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, I would say that maybe even less than 30% of the train stations in Tokyo were accessible.、Um, I had some really interesting adventures.、Um, For example, when I went to Akihabara,、uh, the only elevator that was available was the maintenance elevator for throwing the garbage out.、Um, okay. And so I had to go through the, you know, the staff room and go through these tiny areas where they're moving boxes for me. And I got on the elevator and I got put out in the back alley somewhere. So you got、um, a very intimate introduction. Really, yeah, it was a really interesting experience.、Um, and I'm thankful to have it. I'm thankful things are better now. But、um, so at that point, yeah, I was really impressed that I actually could do a lot more than I thought I could.、Mm. So, how did your thinking evolve from this is a country I want to visit on vacation to deciding that, you know what, I'm going to live in Japan? Well, probably one of the things was when I was heading towards Narita that I kind of felt sad to be going. And I, I think that, you know, as the Tokyo melted away and there's more and more rice fields, and, and then all of a sudden you're at this airport and it kind of felt, you know, 
I felt like I, I was leaving something that was important to me. And um, so I came back a number of times on vacation. And every time I came, I was really impressed with it. The accessibility had improved as much as it did. Um, the places that I hadn't been able to go to before, I gradually became able to visit those places. Um, and so that really, you know, thought made me think that, you know, Japan is a place I could I could live and I want to try to explore it more long term. Um, so I came here uh, for the first time in 2007 to live. Were there any challenges in actually getting a visa to come here and live as someone with a disability? Because in the last episode, we talked about how people with disabilities in Japan are often infantilized or not seen as fully productive members of society. Mm-hmm. So did that factor in at any point when you were making the move here? Uh, the first time I came here, uh, no, I, I actually had a job all lined up. So that was able, like, as long as it's more of the company that's the, the issue than the actual mm-hmm. Japanese government in terms of, uh, you know, blocking uh, those kind of things. So I, I had a job lined up. So, and they were fine with uh, me because I had, because I'd come a number of times and I'd met them other times. I'd worked with a little of them as a volunteer, but um, you can't really sort of get into the welfare system immediately, mm-hmm. of course. So I came over with somebody to, for about half a year with me. So um, until things got settled. So they were insured with that and also you know if it didn't work out we could always go back um so that wasn't uh, as much of an issue yeah. okay i'm sure it's a very different picture between the cities the suburbs and the countryside of japan but how would you evaluate the country's accessibility in 2021 mm. because when i compare Tokyo, for instance, to somewhere like London. Tokyo actually seems to be leagues ahead, at least in some aspects when it comes to accessibility. For example, I was looking at the London Tube map the other day and the number of stations, in particular the older ones in central London, that have no accessible entrance or exit of any kind, actually kind of shocked me, especially as it seems like basically every station in Japan has some form of access for wheelchair users now. Yeah, I actually was surprised as well. I heard somebody else uh, speaking in a presentation and they were mentioning about, you know, New York, this percent is only, only this percent is mm-hmm. accessible and London only this percent and Paris only this percent. Um, and so that really shocked me as well because I just assumed that they'd be good. But uh, Japan, I think, is definitely a world leader in terms of infrastructure for mobility. You know, I got inspired to use public transit when I was here in Japan because of how great the system worked. Mm. Uh, just a little bit of a description. So if you're using a wheelchair, um, what you do is you um, go to the ticket gate after you buy your ticket and you tell the station staff where it is you want to go. Uh, and then they will either guide you to the track or tell you where to meet somewhere. Um, and then you get there and they put down a ramp for you to get onto the train because there's a, there's a gap between the train and the platform. Uh, and then once you get on the train, they actually call ahead to either where you're going to be transferring, um, even if it's a different train line or different company, as well as to your destination, mm-hmm. telling them the exact time you'll be there. And when you arrive, somebody's waiting there for you with a ramp to help you off. And they'll often guide you out of the station if you need it. So I, I just should be lost if I had to do it by myself. <laughs> after even having living here for all this time, I'd probably get lost <laughs> in Tokyo Station for sure. Um, yeah, like especially for somewhere like Shinjuku, it would actually oh, be quite yeah. nice to have someone it, leading it's you always, I just sort of turn off my mind and just follow the guy in front of me. So, But yeah, so I, when I went back to Toronto one of the times, I wanted to try it and I was a little bit shocked at the fact that they didn't have the same system for helping somebody on. Uh, it was sort of like, you know, if there's a, the gap is small enough, you can get on. But the thing is, you know, if you get to your destination, mm-hmm. the gap isn't, you know, is, is bigger than, you know, how we're going to get off kind of thing. So there's definitely, uh, I was really appreciative of what it's like in Japan. Um, that, that's definitely in the cities. Right now they have um, the laws that uh, require that 
uh, train station with over 3,000 daily users is required to have some form of accessible route. Uh, now, usually, ideally, that's an elevator. Sometimes they need to use uh, lifts that are attached to the stairs that sort of slowly go up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not necessarily always ideal. But uh, in general, 96% of stations, and that's a lot of stations uh, in Tokyo, are accessible. The further you go out into the country, of course, that's going to go down uh, because there are fewer users there. They're trying to change that as well, To even if it's not 3,000 daily users. If it's an essential station, mm-hmm. uh, they want to apply that as well. But then you get into other issues as well with um, in the, the country because you know a, a city in the country might only have two stops on the train line, um, and that's not going to get you everywhere uh, in the city. So you need to rely on buses. And well, they, all the buses, I would say, in Tokyo or Osaka or Kyoto are accessible the smaller the city, the fewer lines and, and buses that are, are accessible due to budget constraints. And so you've been here since 2007, so that's almost 14 years? Yeah, about yeah. that, yeah. Or how have things changed in terms of accessibility over that period of time that you've lived in Japan? I think that uh, it, it's been harder to see. Um, the first couple of times, it would be always like a two-year gap between coming. So it would be a huge difference. But um, So because I'm always here now, it's, it's not as easy to see the differences. But uh, you know, thinking back to a number of years before, even uh, there are a lot more places I can go to for sure. Um, the laws have been a lot more solidified um, and uh, new ones. The accessibility laws, they also now require people uh, who have uh, disabilities to sit on the uh, observation boards, um, so to put feedback back into the system. So I'm actually on one of uh, one of those. Yeah, so I think it's definitely improving, um, and I think obviously this year the events coming up this year and uh, happening this year are, have had a big part of that. What prompted you to set up Accessible Japan? I guess I really wanted this website I wish I had back when I first came to Japan, uh, if that makes sense. Um, so when I first came, again, there's a, um, you know maybe if there was anything on accessibility, um, it would be maybe at the back of a Lonely Planet guidebook where it said, you know, it's difficult in a wheelchair, and that was about it, you know. Well, it's, yeah, difficult, not, it's difficult not exactly, anywhere in the world. Yeah, not exactly encouraging. Yeah, so... Um, so that was one thing I wanted. Um, and I had been traveling myself within Japan. And uh, I realized that, you know, as I learned Japanese more and more, I was realizing that, you know, I'd look in English at first and there'd be nothing. But then if I looked in Japanese, I'd find something usually. Mm-hmm. And it's still very much the case today. And I realized that, you know, there's a lot of people that probably want to come visit Japan, but uh, don't have the, the ability to read Japanese or uh, the access to that information and so I sort of two purposes for the website. The first is that I want to encourage people that Japan is an accessible destination. I think a lot of people, you know, I think uh, in the same way for somebody from Asia might look at Europe and they put, you know, Spain and Sweden and, uh, you know, and Greece all in the same basket. And that's Europe. Um, but they're all different, very different countries mm-hmm. and different systems, etc. In the same way, a lot of people, I think, put, you know, Japan in with the rest of Asia and, you know, it's lumped in with, you know, China and Thailand and Philippines. And maybe the image is, you know, these crowded trains and uh, steps everywhere and, you know, throngs people that it would be impossible to get around. Um, so I want to dispel that image of uh, Japan not being an accessible destination uh, to encourage people that, yeah, you can come here and you can have a great time, um, even if you have a disability. Well, it's a fantastically useful site. Not only does it have information for wheelchair users, but it's also got info for people with guide dogs, a whole dictionary of disability language in Japan. And you also, I noticed, do plenty of YouTube videos as well. Uh, one of the ones I watched was 
of you traveling around Sinsoji, the temple in Asakusa, which was really cool. And I didn't realize they actually had a very kind of craftily hidden disabled elevator which blends in almost perfectly with the shrine it's painted red and designed to look uh, look a part of the shrine you wouldn't even notice it was there unless you were looking very hard for it well they had to actually put a, a sign on it to say this is the <laughs> elevator because they did such a good job for yeah. that yeah um so it's definitely been a growing process for myself as well um i i have i use a power wheelchair to get around um so naturally my my point of view has been from wheelchair users so um that was where it started um but i realized you know I, as I'd get contacted from others, you know, who have disabilities, but not necessarily mobility disabilities, you know, I was really challenged with the fact that, you know, I, I really don't know everything about accessibility and, and uh, disability and it is an opportunity to learn a lot more. Uh, and, but I want to do my best to find the answers that the people, um, the people had. Um, so that's where, you know, the information on bringing your guide dog, for example, mm. or bringing medication to Japan, those kind of things were, you know, the fruit of, you know, interacting with people and learning from other people. You've painted quite a you know, positive image of Japan so far in terms of the accessibility. You've described it as a bit of a world leader in terms of its physical infrastructure. But what do you find are the main sticking points here in terms of accessibility? In terms of accessibility, the physical environment, I would say that the public spaces, infrastructure, things that the government has a relationship to, or the, you know, the, the, the basics, um, they're quite good, but uh, it's sort of more... The, the public sector, sorry, the private sector, so restaurants and uh, stores, etc., tend to be less accessible than you would find in other countries, I feel. Part of that is, is sort of it can't be helped because Tokyo is just, you know, so squished in um, and that, you know, a lot of places build up rather than out. Um, mm. And because of that, you know, you're going to get a lot more crammed shops. Um, I think there's some parts of it are, that are sort of culturally related to Japan in terms of having a, a genkan or the step into um, a building. Of course, yeah. So, you know, there's some places that, you know, obviously just because of, you know, rain, et cetera, that they want the step there. But uh, unfortunately, sometimes you see an artificial use of the genkan or more of a cultural use, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to, for example, I think it was a while back, I went to Ikebukuro in the Sunshine, which is one of their big uh, tower department stores. And I went to the top floor where there's usually restaurants. And I think about, I think there's about 10 and maybe nearly half of them had to step into them, even though there's absolutely no physical need for it mm. um, because the building is completely accessible. There's even accessible toilets available on the floor. But just for the, the ambiance of the atmosphere for you know the restaurant, they'd put steps in you know, and that meant that, of course, that I couldn't get into them. Um, so I think there's you know, a lack of education in terms of uh, accessibility for the, the private sector, but also a lot of physical barriers in that area. I think people have a lot of trouble when they come, they want to eat Japanese food, but a lot of those places tend to be the most inaccessible. Well, yes, if you take ramen as an example of one of the foods that most people want to eat when they visit Japan, yeah. a lot of those shops are incredibly narrow, squeezed into tiny back alleys and pretty hard to negotiate. And the, the, stools are, yeah, the stools are fixed down and stuff like that. Yeah, so. You said you were on some kind of oversight board or observation board earlier what does that involve yeah it's one of the oversight boards for the ministry of uh, infrastructure land technology tourism I, i've been actually involved with the um, japanese tourism agency uh, the, the official government one uh, for about three years now i guess they have a um a program for promoting accessible tourism and giving grants to different um different uh, entities in that in that field and through that contact i guess it was um i I was invited to be on one of the, the boards uh, for over, overseeing and, and you know, the, you, we get the reports of what has been changed since the last time. Uh, we have an opportunity to lift up, you know, 
challenges, et cetera, and say that, you know, uh, I think this is, should be changed or this is, this is a current problem that a lot of people mm. are facing. So I've been on that for about two years now, and I'm also on a few uh, for local ones in Erogawa as well. Okay. And, you know, when you have conversations to that level, do you find that it's quite an open and easy conversation to have about why things need to improve or how things should improve? Or again, are there kind of sticking points in that when you're trying to advocate for increased accessibility? Yeah, I mean, the, the one for the accessible tourism was a very compact group. I think there's only about like five, five members and then a couple, maybe four or five more from the government. So it's and it's just a small meeting room. So it wasn't really, it was easy to, to speak freely. But the, the one for the, you know, the federal government, I think there's a, maybe 50 people on the, the board and then there's all the people taking notes, et cetera, all around it. So we're in this huge room with, uh, I think maybe probably near, near a hundred people. So it can be quite nerve nerve wracking to, uh, to say anything lately. It's been on, uh, it's been on zoom. So it's been a little bit easier to say something. It's a great opportunity. And also I've even actually, um, I've heard feedback on some of the things I've suggested from one meeting to the other. Um, a question I brought up about the new accessible taxis in Japan and the, the apps that they use and a desire for that to be improved. And they actually, the ministry reached out to some of the companies and encouraged them along that path. And one of the companies did make a change. So uh, it's definitely encouraging to see people actually listening to the mm-hmm. opinions and um, taking action on them. Mm. You said that there's quite a difference between the public sector and the private sector, and maybe the, anything related to the government might have quite good accessibility, but often it's the private sector where you find these obstacles and barriers. Do you advocate within that space as well? And talk to individual establishments and say here's how you could improve and again if you do like is that an easy conversation to have do you find people open to it yeah it depends i do it on a couple different fronts i guess one of the actual government requirements lately is that for a lot of um, companies particularly related to tourism or transportation etc have to have um, inclusive inclusivity training i guess you'd say it is once a year they'll have their staff um, you know attend a seminar where somebody uh, you know, the speaking. So I've had the opportunity to speak for the limousine bus company at, from the airports. Um, this year I'll be speaking um, at a sort of all staff meeting for a large airline. So, I mean, those are sort of more formal ones um, that I've been involved with. But also just, you know, whenever I go out, I always make a point of trying to just be as vocal as I can about, you know, thanking people for accessibility that they've done or letting people know that, you know, oh, if you do this, it might be better. You might be able to welcome more customers, stuff like that. So there's a yeah, number of, uh, try to incorporate it in my life as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Paralympics are going on as we're recording this, as this episode goes out. Have you noticed specific change in terms of accessibility in relation to the Paralympics over the last few years? Uh, yeah, I would definitely say so. I felt that you know Japan has been moving in the direction of accessibility and inclusion uh, in general. But I think having Olympics and Paralympics has sort of been a catalyst. I think you know there are definitely requirements that the Olympic and Paralympic committees have uh, for the cities that are the hosts that are sort of act as guidelines uh, for those. Um, and then the desire to, to meet those guidelines, of course, by the government. So that's definitely been incre- uh, increasing. But also, even in society at large, I've noticed a lot more discussion about Olympics and Paralympics. Um, I mean, for even just now in the news, you, they say Olympics and Paralympics as opposed mm. to before when I was a kid, it was always just the Olympics. And then, oh, we had the Paralympics, you know. Um, and I think also the government always wants to put a good foot forward uh, for the customer, the people who did not end up coming. Um, mm. But, uh, for example, recently the Shinkansen, 
they've made some improvements to the accessible seating. Uh, before, it was only that you had two spots maybe in the train available. Uh, you usually had to book them possibly a month in advance. You can't book them online, so you'd have to go to the, the ticket station at the station. So the people who have you know the most challenges in moving around have to do the most moving in order to get on um, you know the on the train and even then you have to wait a long time etc mm. um, but uh, you know there's been a number of uh, groups uh, disability advocate groups that have been asking for uh, improvements in that and I think that because of the Olympics and Paralympics you know the desire to put a you know a good foot forward I think that those plans were better listened to and faster implemented on uh, than they might have in the past. What do you think needs to happen going forward to kind of keep up the momentum of the Paralympics and, you know, keep improving Japan's accessibility? Yeah, I think that well, we're very fortunate here in Japan because in 2025, they have the Osaka World Fair coming as well. So that's going to be another big event where uh, Western Japan will be focusing on uh, welcoming people from around the world as well. So uh, and probably a lot of them will come through Tokyo as well. Right. So um, so I think there's another big event to keep people focused you know, on that. But in the meantime, I think the most important thing that maybe the disabled community and people who want to come visit Japan uh, to do is to uh, just go out and use the, the new infrastructure to, to be seen, to be visible. I think it's very, very important. I think that, uh, you know, just by being seen, you know, it has this uh, effect on people to know, realize that, oh, well, p- people like that are part of our society. Mm-hmm. People like that are um, you know, also want to go to the convenience store, people want to go to uh, the restaurant. Um, and, you know, I think that compared to the, the, the formation of the earth, you know, where it's like there's been all these rocks hurling around and they, they, they bump into each other and they cause explosions and all these kind of things. And um, probably explosions, but they, they, they cause a lot of ruckus. Um, but in the end, you know, the, the, that's how the earth was formed. It's become, you know, a much more beautiful place than just a chunk of rocks. Um, and so I think that those, those collisions are very important. And so I just hope that people from the disabled community, uh, take advantage of that to, to go out, to do the things they want to do, to be seen doing them and um, to the things that they can't do, to ask, you know, hey, I want to do this as well. Um, can, how can you help me do that? Or how can you change so that I can do that myself? But also people, um, you know, from the government, uh, public, private sector as well, uh, just to, to have an attitude change of um, the importance of inclusive design and accessibility uh, to realize that it isn't just something that needs to be tacked on afterwards to meet requirements, but that it has a real positive effect for society at large. And could you explain that point a little bit further for me? Why do you believe that increased accessibility is better for society at large? Yes, I think that uh, increased accessibility or inclusive design um, is good for a number of reasons. I mean, it's it's definitely an investment in your future in terms of, you know, you never know when you might become disabled yourself, Uh, even temporarily. A lot of people I know... uh, through Accessible Japan have contacted about renting a wheelchair because they broke their leg uh, mm. before their trip, but they didn't want to cancel their tickets or, or they, they're pregnant uh, and it was difficult to get around. Or a lot of people, you know, contact about renting wheelchairs because they're traveling with their grandparents um, and it'd just be easier for them to get around with that. So I think that uh, to remember that uh, universal design and accessible features are for everyone and very helpful for them. Uh, but also I think there's a huge economic benefit as well. I mean, right now, uh, I think in the UK, it's called the Purple Pound. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of the economic impact that people with disabilities have. Um, and I think it's uh, it's much larger than a lot of people think. And, uh, you know, it's not just 
the people with disabilities themselves, but it's also their family and friends. Uh, for example, in my family, when we went, would choose a vacation destination, of course, they're going to choose a place that I can go to with as well. So, you know, if you have choice A, B, and C, but B and C are not accessible, by default, we're going to go to, you know, A, and what might become repeaters. Um, and so that's a family of, of five going there because one member has a disability. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about the ripple effects of the extended network of disabled people. Something we haven't really talked about, but related to your point about how universal access can benefit so many people is Japan's aging population. Do you think that Japan having one of the oldest populations on earth is actually helping drive uh, the increase in accessibility here? Yeah, if, I, if I'm correcting you, you have to fact check me afterwards. But I believe that the first priority seats uh, were originally invented for the elderly. And I think, that, you know, it sort of changed from there to also you know, for people who are pregnant, for people who have disabilities as well. Um, so I think definitely has had an impact on uh, the focus of it. Um, and I and I'm always consider them uh, my allies. Uh, actually, once I was at a, a shrine in Miyazaki and I didn't expect it to be accessible. Uh, and when I got there, there was actually a ramp going up over the steps. And I was kind of like impressed with that. I was like, oh, I wonder why. Uh, it doesn't, it's not a huge, you know, uh, famous place. Um, but there was a wedding going on and both of the grandparents were in wheelchairs. So I think that, you know, as the society is um, getting older here in Japan, that there are going to be a lot of people that, you know, think about accessibility for the first time um, as they realize that their, their grandparents or their parents wants to be active in the community still, um, but just need a little bit more help or accommodation or um, a different uh, style of getting into a building. We spent most of this episode focusing on the infrastructural challenges facing disabled people, but I'd like to wrap up by asking from a societal perspective, what do you see as the biggest challenge going forward for disabled people here in Japan? Or, you know, what do you see as the biggest opportunity for change? I think the biggest next challenge uh, is definitely going to be education. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all different around the world, of course, but uh, for example, in Canada, um, you go to your local elementary school, then your local middle school, then your local high school, and then from there on, you go to university, college, etc. And the government is required for making those public school systems um, accessible for everyone. Um, So I was able to go to the same high school that Mm -hmm. all my friends went to, etc. Whereas uh, in Japan, a lot of people more recently have been able to go to uh, the local public schools and the middle schools um, with their friends. Uh, and the schools themselves are becoming more accessible. Actually, just recently they've mandated that elementary schools and middle schools, because they're used for evacuations, they must have you know accessible toilets, mm. must have uh, a ramp to get in, and must have an elevator. Uh, so they are changing those things. But unfortunately, uh, there's that level at uh, when it goes from middle school to high school whereas you don't go to your local high school here in japan um well you, well, you can if you'd like to but um a lot of people they'll write exams and they'll go mm-hmm. to a different school they might be in a completely different part of, of the town or even sometimes people go to different parts of the country uh, because of that you know opportunities that it has for their future career etc and a lot of times that isn't been open to people with disabilities a lot of times people who have disabilities will go to a special school for people with disabilities, um, which then sort of limits their, mm. their opportunities for afterwards. And because it's not necessarily a government-run school, high school, there's not the same requirements for making it accessible. So I think that um, that makes it a bit more difficult, uh, or quite a bit more difficult possibly, uh, for people with disabilities to be involved in education to the same level as mm. their peers, to be seen by their peers, um, you know, instead of being sheltered away. But then also going on to higher education and uh, career opportunities. The more people have the opportunities to get education and be involved that way, 
they'll have more opportunities to be involved in the workforce as well. And then just, you know, just being seen more in society, I think will take uh, Japan to the next step of, of inclusion and diversity. Josh, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Josh Grisdale. My thanks to him for hosting us up at his offices in Edogawa Ward for this episode. His website, Accessible Japan, is linked in the show notes. If you have specific questions, the website has a forum that covers everything from general accessibility to working and living in Japan with a disability, and you can ask your questions there. If you enjoyed this episode of Deep Dive, please leave us a review on whichever podcast service you listen through, or get in touch with me and the show on Twitter, Instagram, and all the rest of it. Cheers for listening, and until next time, Podskada Summer.